It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's Live in the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. This week on Live in the Bream, you know him, you love him. It's impossible not to. The one and only Eric Metaxas, the voice, the personality, the charisma behind the Eric Metaxas show. You've seen him on TV. You hear him on radio. He's had five New York Times bestsellers, among many other things. I love to also call him my friend. And he's got a brand new book out, Is Atheism Dead? We're going to ask him. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you. I think the most interesting part of that introduction is that even though I've had five New York Times bestsellers, I hate the New York Times. Isn't that ironic? But if you um, do hate the New York Times, don't you love that they're forced to include your books then? I, oh, who knows that they are anymore? This book, I'm not kidding, actually. This book, uh, I, I'm concerned that it will sell enough copies to get on the New York Times bestseller list, but they'll decide they don't want to put it there. They've done that with some of Dinesh D'Souza's books. They can get weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be nice if they just reflected reality. But that would be not in keeping with their worldview, which is a little bit more based on fantasy. Not well, that there's anything wrong with that. Well, there. listen, I know. And I've had friends who have run that gauntlet with them and sold lots of copies, more than some other people who made the list in that week and somehow mysteriously did not appear. Yeah. So we're very familiar with how this can work. Um, but let's just say, Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas, a brand new book. Um, listen, your friends, your supporters, people who love this book. And Love You will be cheering for you to make that list yet again. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about this book. It truly is fascinating. I'm not going to lie. I'm not done with it because I've been wrestling with Sheldon Bream, my husband, who started it first. But it is chock full of so much information, scientific, barely. I mean, listen, I'm barely able to understand it. You're a smart guy. You got to dumb some of this stuff down for us. But the science, the archaeology, all of it, you say there is proof there that if you don't believe in a God, that you're choosing not to, despite the evidence. That's your argument. Walk us through it. That's a that's a Shannon Bream. Uh, uh, Breaking it down for you. Diplomatic way of putting it, actually, <laughs> because honestly, the, and look, the reason the book is titled "Is Atheism Dead?" is because in 1966 there was a famous Time Magazine cover article that said, "Is God Dead?" And at the time, it was a really shocking thing to kind of put this creepy idea in the middle of America's living rooms, is God dead? What does that mean? And of course, what it meant was that the cognoscenti, the the elites had decided based on Darwin and Freud and this and that, that science had pushed God out of the equation and that we're moving into a brave new secular world. And, you know, or, or, or maybe we are, probably we are, let's ask the question, is God dead? And I see that as the high watermark of that worldview, but it caught on as a narrative in the 60s, and it has kept on all of our lives so that most people really do think that, well, maybe there's a God, but I doubt it, and I think that maybe faith is separate from everything else, and that science is its own thing, and the fact is that that's all nonsense. Uh, Since 1966, the evidence from science, think of the irony here, the evidence from science has been pointing more and more and more to the inevitable conclusion that there is a creator of this universe 
who designed it with such exquisite calibration that it's it's actually frightening. It, it, it's so perfect on every level. They call it the fine-tuned universe, the fine-tuned planet, that the more science we know, the more we see there is not the ghost of a chance that this happened randomly or by chance. It is absolutely frightening. It's like it's the, the classic thing of finding a pocket watch on the beach and somebody says, oh, that's really cool what the, what the, what the waves and the wind did. Look, look what it made. And you'd say, no, look inside. It's more and more complex than you ever dreamt. Who made this? Where did they get the technology to make? That's what science has led us to. But the, but the problem is since 1966, and the famous article, Is God Dead?, we've, we've not really looked at that evidence, or we've never really called the bet. We've let it pile up, but nobody really paid attention. And for a number of reasons, I thought it was time to say, okay, folks, let's talk about this. And when you look at it, it's game over. The question is not, is God dead? The question is, is atheism dead? I make the argument that atheism is simply not intellectually tenable, period, case closed. If you want to be an agnostic, that's still open to you. We can have a lot of conversations about, you know, is it, is it Aristotle's God or, or Einstein's God or, or, or whatever we want to talk about. But the idea that you could believe 50 years ago or, or 100 years ago that there is no God, that idea, I think, is off the table, again, ironically, because of science. And I said, it's, it's time to talk about that. And it's time to, to say to, for example, the new atheists like Hitchens and Dawkins that they were not intellectually serious. They were very sloppy and actually worse than sloppy. They were dishonest. And we need to call them on that and say, look, if you don't want to believe in the God I believe in, that's fine. It's a free country. At least it is here. But honestly, to, to say that all religion is evil and there is no God is so intellectually dishonest. So I so the first part of the book is science. The second part of the book is some insane archaeology stuff, which we can talk about. And then the third part is dealing with atheism itself and the record of atheism and how I think in the end, philosophically, it's like a snake uh, swallowing its own tail, which is, you know, one of the images on the cover of the book. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. So let's start with science um, because you went to the best of the best. I mean, the most respected to talk about some of these, these concepts that are, are hard for us who are non-scientific brains to sort of digest, but we can get it. Um, tell us who you talked to and what you found. Well, I mean, that's the point is I'm not a scientist, but I can, I can read their books and I can, if, if, you, if you talk to them and you begin to understand this stuff, it's nothing less than astonishing. There are three arguments in my book. The first one is the story of the Big Bang, which is itself a, such a fascinating story. I never really knew the story or understood the implications or how controversial it was. Uh, we don't need to go into that. But the second part is called the fine-tuned universe. Christopher Hitchens said that that's the most significant argument on the God side of the equation. And he could be very vicious and nasty in debate. So the fact that in the back of a car, somebody you know shoved a, a microphone and camera in front of his face, asked him the question. He said, the fine-tuned universe, this idea that the more science we know, again, irony, the more science we know, the more we're able to see that things are 
so perfectly calibrated that it's freaky. And you kind of realize there's no way this could have happened by chance because it's not one thing or two things. It's endless. So that's the fine-tuned universe. But the third thing, um, which kind of made me write the book, was I met a guy named James Tour. Uh, he's a nanoscientist, nanochemist, nanobiologist. He's an organic chemist in uh, Houston at Rice University. He is a super genius, probably the greatest nanoscientist alive today. And it doesn't mean that he's teeny-weeny. It means he <laughs> studies things that are teeny-weeny, right? So what does he do? He actually makes molecules in the lab. So he has at least as good a knowledge of anyone on the planet of what it takes to construct a molecule and what the odds are of a molecule or a cell sort of coming into being randomly. And he talked to me about this. He said, he reminded me, and this was probably on some test you took and I took like in high school, because if you ask a scientist like, okay, what happened? They would say, well, 4 billion years ago on planet earth, um, life emerged in the shape of single cells. That's the simplest, simplest, simplest form of life. It emerged 4 billion years ago. We know that. And you say, oh, okay. So that's the simplest form of life. Yeah, that's the absolute simplest form of life. And you're saying it emerged 4 billion years ago. So, okay, how did it emerge? Well, you're going to hear crickets because in 1952, 53, some scientists at the University of Chicago said, we think we figured this out. And so they created this prebiotic soup, which just means some semblance of what they thought was on the earth four billion years ago. Some, uh, you know, some water, some saline, maybe some ammonia, methane, you know, some basic, basic elements. And they ran electricity through it, thinking probably there was a lot of lightning striking at that time for some atmospheric reason. And they got amino acids to form. And they got really excited. They go, hey, we're off to the races. We got amino acids. We're going to find the next step, the next step, the next step. Before you know it, you know, we're going to have people walking around. No problem. Well, they've worked on it for 70 years. And James Tour, who constructs molecules in the lab, says they, they are so clueless on this 70 years after having begun that they, the funding needs to be ended. They have been doing something for 70 years. And not only have they not moved the ball forward, they have moved the ball backwards because the more you know about what's involved in going from amino acids to proteins and da, 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 to before you get a cell, the more you know about that, the more you know it's not happening. It's kind of like somebody saying, you know, <clears throat> like a five-year-old saying, I wonder if I could build a ladder to the sun. Hey, Bobby, let's try. You know, by the time he's 15, he's not going to build a ladder anymore. He, he figured out it's impossible. But when he was five, like that's the kind of crazy ideas five-year-olds have. Well, in 1952, they thought, we think we figured it out. Seven decades have passed. They are still, you know, <laughs> they're still cranking this idea out and, and talking about like, we're actually Richard Dawkins, the famous new atheist said, we're working on it. It's like, yeah, you're, you're working on it. Um, it is, obvious now because of the complexity of a cell, which we couldn't know in 1952 the way we do today, the DNA coding, it's so outrageously complex that even the thought that it came into being randomly, it just doesn't work. But who's going to be the one to raise their hand as a scientist and say, oh, by the way, we have zero clue 
how life came into being four billion years ago on planet Earth. Nobody's going to say that except James Tour, uh, which is why I interviewed him, because he's kind of angry about this. He's saying, like, this is dishonest. You can't work on something for seven decades and get nowhere and and keep asking for funding. Um, so it's it's actually funny because we know that, you know, once you have life, somebody might talk to you about evolution and then you can have an argument about evolution, but this has nothing to do with evolution. This is about how do you go from non-life to life? And if you look, it's called abiogenesis, right? How do you go from non-life to life? And what I find funny is that if you look at the definitions, I write about this in the book is atheism dead. If you look at the definition of Wikipedia and other places that abiogenesis, it says it's the evolution of non-life to life. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's, there's no evolution if there's no life. In other words, even if you believe in evolution, you can't say that, you know, a bunch of pieces of plastic evolved into a flat screen TV. What, what are you talking about? So this really struck me when I talked to James Tour as so outrageous that one of the greatest questions science could ever ask or answer is 100% we know nothing, but nobody dares to say it except James Tour. So i I put it in my book. There are a couple of chapters because I said, this shows us the limit of limits of science, that science in 70 years, we've done an infinity of things with science, but we have not moved the ball forward a millimeter on where life came from. And we were really confident we could, but we haven't. So once I realized that, I said, I've got to write about that. I got to write about the fine-tuned universe, got to write the Big Bang. The, the evidence has piled up especially with the fine-tuned universe, to a level that we should at least be aware that the evidence for God is, it's, it's overwhelming. Again, if you, don't, if you say, well, I don't want to believe in Jesus or I don't, I don't like the Bible, that's fine. But at this point, you cannot really say there's no God, the universe just emerged, the planet just emerged, life just emerged. At that point, you're being obstinate. Uh, or flippant, uh, or simply uh, unserious. Uh, but but I so that's why the question is: Atheism dead? I think atheism is dead. I think agnosticism uh, will always be alive and deserves to be. But science has led us to the death of pure atheism. And that is the name of the book: Is Atheism Dead? We're talking with Eric Metaxas, the author of this and many other books you probably know and love. So let me ask you about the other big component here in your research. Because it's not only fascinating the things that have been discovered through archaeology and sifting through remains, but it's that we haven't heard about some of these. That's what surprised me the most uh, about what you put together in this book is that the things that have been uncovered, it's like it never happened. I, see, this is, this is why uh, you're so smart, even though you pretend to be normally intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> because that, to me, is the headline. There's all this amazing stuff. And on the one hand, yes, it's amazing, 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 amazing. But even more amazing is the fact that no one talks about this. We act as though it's not true. And, you know, I sometimes think, am I going crazy? When I discover something, I think, wait a minute. We haven't discovered how life came into being. In other words, scientists have gone from hope in 70 years to, to less than nowhere. And no one ever asks the question. Nobody ever says, hey, scientists, you have nothing on this. What do you say about that? I mean, the obvious answer is uh, an intelligence created life. 
Now, you don't have to believe that, but that's way more plausible than any other theory by a factor of a, a million. Um, some of the scientific discoveries uh, in, on the fine-tuned universe is the same kind of thing, that you, you discover that Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, you kind of think, who cares about Jupiter? If Jupiter weren't there, we wouldn't be here. There's no life on Earth if Jupiter weren't there. That's a scientific fact. It pulls away, you know, probably 99% of the meteors and asteroids because it's so massive. It's 400 million miles away. You can barely see it in the night sky if you know where to look on the right day. But if it weren't there, we wouldn't be here. And it goes on and on. There are things that if they weren't exactly as they are, if the moon weren't exactly the size that it is, if the earth weren't exactly the size that it is, why aren't we learning this in school? Well, because it leads to a narrative that says it's all been designed. And so some of the archaeology, to me, it's just hilarious. When I found that a man that I met in Albuquerque, Dr. Stephen Collins, had discovered biblical Sodom, I thought, well, I haven't heard anything about that. It's probably, you know, some, some person of faith kind of blowing smoke. I've discovered Noah's Ark. I discovered this. I discovered that. Like, and then you look into it, you're like, I don't know. Well, he flat out discovered biblical Sodom. The story is incredibly fascinating because the details are, you know, the proof is in the pudding. He discovered a place that, first of all, he found the place based on what it says in Genesis. The first place, you know, if you believe in the Bible, you look in Genesis and say, where does it say Sodom is? And where even biblical archaeologists have said it was, even though nobody discovered it, they say it's probably down here by the Dead Sea. It's probably here. It's probably here. He, uh, this guy, Dr. Stephen Collins, looks at this. Um, he's reading Genesis in Israel. He's about to take his tour to show them where the archaeologists say it is. And he's aware of some discrepancies, and he just doesn't feel good about it. So he reads Genesis over and over and over in his hotel room. And it, what it says is flat out different from where everybody says we're going to go on the bus tomorrow. It, it says it's north of the Dead Sea, you know, uh, around the Jordan, and, and nobody's ever looked there. So he looks there, he finds a tell, which is, you know, cities upon cities over millennia piling up to this gigantic mound. They excavate. At 1700 BC, he finds a layer of ash or soot exactly when, you know, the Bible says it would be. And no scientist can make any sense of why it's there because it, it, it is a jumble. They say it's like a Cuisinart effect. There's like tiny bits of melted brick, tiny bits of melted human bone, but it's all churned up in a way that you would say it wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't a fire. It wasn't a volcano. It wasn't a, what could it be? Well, scientists, and when I say scientists, 21 scientists one month ago, published an article in Nature, which is one of the most extraordinary, you know, peer-reviewed articles, scientific journal. And these 21 scientists conclude effectively, they actually say it, that this is precisely what happened at Sodom in the biblical description. Now, they don't say they believe that Sodom happened or whatever, but, but they acknowledge in a very long, very scientific article, uh, pouring over every detail of the science, that the only thing that could have done this was what they call a cosmic airburst event. That's what happened in Tunguska, Siberia in 1908, where a meteor about you know, 200 feet in diameter comes into the atmosphere at 35,000 miles an hour, explodes like five miles above the surface. And in 1908, it instantly flattened 80 million trees. 
the the initial heat would have been something like 300,000 degrees. C- crazy stuff. So these scientists say that's exactly what happened here at Sodom. That's what accounts for the soot. It's what accounts for this, accounts for that. 700 mile an hour winds. Humans were vaporized. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then the scientist, Dr. Stephen Collins, when they first discovered this layer of soot, he finds a piece of pottery. He's a ceramic typologist. So he knows instantly this is from 1700 BC. And he looks at it and he flips it over and there's this green glassy glaze on it. And he says, well, now we have a problem because this technology wasn't invented till like 24 centuries later by the Muslims in like the eighth century. So they take it to a lab and the people in the lab say, yeah, this was exposed to probably 5,000 degrees of heat for 25 seconds. The only thing that it could account for that level of heat, that length of time would be a cosmic airburst event. There's all kinds of other information, but it goes on and on and on and on. And the biggest question is, why am I not reading this on the front page of every major newspaper? And if you're, if you're a skeptic, that's just one of the stories in the book that corroborates the Bible as history. You cannot say it's a bunch of folktales. I mean, this, this is a story that happened in the first couple of pages of the Bible, like, you know, where you think that's totally mythic. But it goes on and on and on. And I just think it's about time that people of faith in particular are familiar with the evidence and the facts. Because once you are, it will change how you walk around in this world. You realize there's, there's no doubt that God is real. The only question is the details. Mm-hmm. It's all there and much, much more in the new book, Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. Go check it out. You will learn something. Just like when you hear from Eric, you talk to Eric, you read something of Eric, you get smarter. Whether you plan to or not, you just do. He rubs off on you. And we're very grateful for that. Congratulations on the new book. And thank you for making time to talk to us about it, Eric, on this week's Live in the Brain. Always, always a joy. Thank you so much, Shannon. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.